Welcome to the Surviving Society housing series. The right to a safe home should be a multi-class issue that we can build solidarities from. From the cladding scandal, Grenfell and a lack of affordable housing, this series will feature experts, academics and activists to educate us on how the state and corporate organisations have continued to thwart collective unities on these matters. Executively produced by Georgia Fori Addo and Dan Rennick. Welcome to another episode of Surviving Society's Housing Series. We are really excited today to be joined by Ben Gidley, who is Senior Lecturer at Birkbeck in Psychosocial Studies. Uh, ben is also a board member of the International Study for Race and Racism, a board member of Monitor Global Intelligence on Racism board member, is member of the European Sociological Association Group on Race and Racism, co-founder of the Social Scientists Against Hostile Environment, and Ben's research covers um, cities, diaspora, diversity, and racisms. Um, listeners, you are in for a treat. Ben wrote an article titled They've Got Their Wine, They've Got Their Wine Bars, We've Got Our Pubs, Housing, Diversity, and Community in Two South London Neighbourhoods. And we're going to have a conversation basically based on this paper on some neighbourhoods in Bermondsey and Camberwell. We wanted to talk to Ben more broadly about racisms and diaspora. The way you write the paper really shows how we can create um, broader understandings about housing allocation that actually extends beyond London. Shows how housing impacts on diversity, on community and how it shapes our cities. And I think especially in the era of gentrification, I think that matters a lot. Ben, thank you for coming on the show. Oh, thank you for having me. It's great to be here. What motivated you to do this research on these two neighbourhoods and just a bit about the arguments within the paper? Sure. I should say that the paper, I co-wrote it with Ulla Jensen, who was one of the main researchers on the project. Oh, Ulla, so sorry. That is my bad. (laughs) Ulla Jensen, big up Ulla Jensen. Sick paper. You're amazing. We'll get you on as well. Yeah, big up Ulla. Yeah, so the project, it was part of a bigger European project. There was five cities, five European cities. So London, Nuremberg, Turin and Budapest and Barcelona. Is that five? And two neighbourhoods in each city. The whole project was led by the Italian team at a think tank called Fieri in Turin. And they were interested, well, we were all interested in how diversity, in particular the type of diversity that's emerged in the last decade or so as a result of um, increased migration in Europe, how that plays out at neighbourhood level in the context of the sort of policy panic around uh, parallel lives and ghettos and um, you know, segregation and integration, which are kind of European, European-wide policy hot topics, I suppose. And the original idea was that we would each look at two neighbourhoods, each research team would look at two neighbourhoods in their city, and they kind of wanted us to think about a neighbourhood that we thought had tension and a neighbourhood that we thought was quite harmonious. And thinking about London, and in particular South London, which is where I'd mostly been working up till then, we couldn't really think of places that we thought were one or the other. We thought it's a mix it's um, you know it's ambivalent and ambiguous in pretty much every area, and we settled on Bermondsey as a place that maybe has a reputation for being. It's got a kind of reputational association with the far right, the Rights for Whites marches in the 1990s, for example. And there have been times in the past when uh, families, minority families, wouldn't want to be housed in Bermondsey, in some parts of Bermondsey in particular, because of that reputation. 
Whereas Camberwell is a place that maybe has a reputation for kind of mixing. It's like students. It's it's kind of seen as more multicultural. But our hunch was, based on what we, you know, already knew of those places, was that it would be a lot more complicated, and that was in fact the case. So in Bermondsey, for example, talking to white residents. Uh, so Ulla did most of the interviews, but we did things like focus groups as well. And talking to a lot of white residents, we would a huge amount of um, xenophobic, sometimes racist language about a whole gallery of other outsiders, racialized minorities. Um, there was a lot of resentment. There was this very strong idea that the council had banned the English flag, that there wasn't things for us, you know, for when you say what do you, who do you mean by us it was rarely named but basically the idea was that the white working class community had been kind of left behind and neglected when the focus group ended people white residents would kind of walk over to their non-white friends and neighbors and walk home together chatting happily and spending time with them many of those people that we'd heard quite racist accounts from when we got to know them uh, better we realized that they had non-white grandchildren they were doing childcare for their um for their you know migrant neighbors they were people going shopping for each other borrowing and lending money there was a lot of trust and intimacy and reciprocal mutual aid across lines of ethnicity and it in fact in terms of social mixing day to day it was it was class was much more of a segregating factor and so the title of the paper was um, from an interview that Ulla did where somebody said, you know, basically there's a new Bermondsey, the, the kind of richer residents, they've got their wine bars, we've got our pubs, we never mix. And that kind of class line was much more important in terms of everyday life, even though in the kind of stories that people told, you know, racism, xenophobia, prejudice featured quite large. So there's a kind of tension between what people said and what people did which i just think that's such a great introduction ben like my <laughs> yeah, mind is yeah. just like going mad but let me just like try and focus on one thing that you said which really st stood out to me and that we've spoken about a lot on this show is what people say with regards to racism negative racialization um, and xenophobia more broadly in comparison to how they live or what they experience and like just for example what we've spoken about on the show before is um how some black people in particular will say that they haven't experienced racism, then detail loads of mm. instances of racism and how that's manifested in their life or will say, oh, it's okay though, because I'm all right, that that type of mm. thing, black people and people of color more broadly. But then in the same in the same instance, we have what Ben's talking about in terms of possibly the perpetuators of, perpetuators of the racism, mm. sort of saying, I am, I am racist, but then how they live and experience difference doesn't kind of map onto that as well. Did, did, does that make sense? Yeah. It's like these like in, these juxtapositions about how race and racism are, like uh, are lived and experienced. I, I think there is a kind of distinction between the kind of convivial life that we have. So you different races, different genders, different ethnicities. We all get along on a day to day basis because it's on some level it's pragmatic, right? Like you, you have to get on. Questions of race come around when there's an idea of scarcity or the state showing a perceived deference to a, a particular group. Now that doesn't have to be true. It could be imagined. Those things circulate in a popular memory. But what's interesting is when you kind of talk about Ben is how class is becoming a kind of an indicator. I guess that's where you can, you can obviously see the difference. For example, 
a new block of flats being brought up, put up and they, they cost X amount. So you know that's not for you. How class is built into the kind of fabric of the buildings. So for example, a new set of flats costs X, those flats are council flats. So it's built for certain kinds of people. So it class kind of jumps out at you. But within class, obviously race and all the others sit inside it. Mm. Just to give just some more context to the paper, I've just got a bit here that I want to read. With a total of 39,000 council homes, Southwark Council, which is the council that these areas are part of, is the largest social landlord in London. Southwark also has the highest proportion of council housing to homes of any local authority in Britain, owning a third of all housing units and providing housing for nearly half of the population in the borough. In addition, 16,700 properties are owned by leaseholders. As in, as in other parts of Britain, the construction of ha- council houses kept increasing until the 1980 Housing Act. In Southwark, two-thirds of current tenants are not economically active and have a medium income, which is five times lower than that of h- homeowners. I think, and this has come back to the point I said in the introduction, I think that in itself shows you how we can push back against narratives that London hasn't got the capacity and possibility to, to generate class solidarity across the UK in terms of thinking about housing. Do you know what I mean? There's this mm. constant perception that London isn't that doesn't that doesn't have that doesn't mm. have this. Like mm. that's what the media portray. And it creates this kind of like the the North South thinking about the North South divide basically yeah. and, and thinking about housing. Yeah, yeah. And that's why I think that this this work that you and Ola did was is so powerful because it really gives you an, a snapshot of how we can create like solidarity around housing. Yeah, absolutely. I think the whole language of class in the UK in the last decade has been really captured by reactionary voices that have kind of tried to equate class with race and kind of the phrase the white working class um, kind of ethnicize class identity so you look at you know people talking about educational attainment for example and they'll say something like the one ethnicity that performs the worst is white working class boys as if that's an ethnicity Mm. um so the kind of language of class um, that used to ground solidarity is is kind of less available. And this idea that London is the place of the metropolitan elites, mm-hmm. so that class language has been used to turn against, kind of, I guess, what you might think of as progressive politics, radical politics, whereas on, in, in reality, it, somewhere like, you know, in a state in Bermondsey, most of the social issues that are going to be experienced are very similar to social issues faced in any other estate in a, I don't know, Red Wall area or... Mm-hmm. And in fact, in Bermondsey, in contrast to other parts of London, well, actually, there's, it's also true in many places along, you know, the river in East London, there's this idea of also being left behind a kind of resentment at middle class discourses about about the area. So, you know, Bermondsey is where Jade Goody came from and the way that she was represented in the media, I think, when mm-hmm. the estate that we worked on was where she came from. I think the headline in... I can't remember which tabloid it was. It was like this is the gutter from which in, in which she was dragged <laughs> up, and that kind of people referred to that. This we did research a couple of years ago that people referred to that kind of stigma, you know, abjection of their their place in the kind of middle class language. The idea of you know chavs, the underclass. Mm. Um, so that kind of resentment that fuels some of the kind of left behind sort of backlash is also a feature of mm. of a place like Bermondsey laughing then it's not because we think it's funny it's just because we're always like we can't believe how much they take the piss out of our like yeah uh, like the lives of people 
like I'm, how low they'll go just to but I guess create what, a deserving and undeserving. But what's yeah. interesting is when they say stuff, like that, it's a reflection of how they feel about that area, right? A form of truth for them, right? Those kind of resentments that kind of float around, they can also form a form of solidarity for the area. So it's a badge we wear it. So I'm proud of the estate I'm from. I'm proud of where I'm from. And that kind of roughness gives me a certain kind of authenticity that is marketable. And people do use that, right? In terms of like popular culture, drill, hip hop, we market that kind of authenticity. We wear that badge of roughness. But then do you feel like in the arguments in the paper, like this sort of the notion of living apart together mm. because of just the continued stretch of like living standards, the lack of housing, austerity, neoliberalism, right. like this living apart together makes those things less possible. Like my friends from Tower Hamlets, when they go out, some of them won't even say they're from where they're from when they're in a bar because they're talking to people from outside the area. They won't say or try to speak in their in their natural accent yeah. because they feel they won't fit in. It's a kind of pragmatic exercise to kind of navigate the spaces that they're in, in their own area, where they grew up, where all their family grew up, which is it's weird. Yeah, that's definitely true of uh, many South London estates. There's yeah, places I've worked in Deptford where if you, you, you know, you just don't name the estate if you want a delivery, for example, because if they realise that's where it is, they... They won't deliver. Or uh, there's one estate that I've worked in further out in in Kent with Alison Rook, where we decided we couldn't even name the place in the piece that we wrote about. So Alison Rook and I wrote worked in a research project there, and the the kind of stigma for the um, associated with the estate was so strong from all the service providers and the local authority that even writing about it we felt like naming it was just contributing to that mm-hmm, that mm-hmm. reputational damage that was that just, people lived through i just want to repeat something that you said ben just to the listeners so like when people are getting deliveries that you found in your research there are some people that won't yeah write the names of the places where they go where they live because they won't the delivery deliveries won't come there i just think that's just sort of thing is just really important to emphasize like how this is a very real and lived stigma but what's interesting is as I've seen this kind of transfer into popular culture. So James Arthur. Oh yeah. So he came on TV the other day and he was saying, "What the musician?" The musician, Arthur. and he was this like is that. So random. And Go he on. was like, "So the, to kind of to display his authenticity, he was like, I grew up in a council estate, oh, right. even though he, I think he went to school uh, and like an air force school. He was like a, a kind of like a, a military kid. Oh yeah, yeah. But on coming back to kind of dedic to show how." hard he was and so authentic to to present an authentic authentic meritocratic story exactly this is it yeah so he went he's like i'm from an estate just like you so Mm -hmm. you know what it's like we grew up with nothing but that's assuming that everyone who lives on the estate is poor on living in abject poverty which we know it's not true right but this has become like the kind of catch-all kind of Mm. phrase that people chuck out there like if i'm from an estate I must be poor. And it's always the people, whether it's people that are, that say they have the lived experience of the estate or people that say they represent the interests of the people on the estate, who I think seem to care the least. Mm. As in they're using it in a very like buzzwordy, mm. catch all ter- terminology. I think there's a kind of crisis of representation that's yeah. related to that. The history of that, I suppose, is... So in the mid-20th century, the kind of golden age of social housing in a place like Bermondsey or Deptford or, or Bow, there was a whole kind of web of representational, of institutions that represented people, maybe mediated their struggles perhaps, perhaps blunted their struggles in some ways, 
but also kind of there were channels for airing grievances so if you were you typically there'd be a tenants association there'd be a labor council you'd know your councillor you'd be you'd get a, a decent job in one of the factories you'd know the union reps the union reps would be at the labor party meeting there was a kind of a a, a, a network that was layered onto kind of kinship networks um that meant there was a kind of a voice even if that voice was kind of muted whereas in the period of kind of deindustrialization where the kind of key ingredient of a decent job disappears and so the housing becomes residualized it becomes a kind of place associated with poverty and needs um but also those kind of representational networks are frayed and, and and broken and so in some places um in the 1990s the far right were very able to that space was kind of evacuated by the left mm -hmm. by the labor movement the far right were able to fill that space they switched from kind of street politics to community politics estate politics you know dog dog boo politics as it's uh, sometimes called you know airing people's grievances in Southwark it's a bit complicated because in some ways the Lib Dems moved into that space and that's interesting I feel like people don't really know that yeah so they kind of capitalized on a left turn to things like identity politics and there was a lot of stigmatization I mean you know, uh, Peter Tatchell was um Labour candidate in Bermondsey that who was you know vilified in a kind of very homophobic campaign that the Lib Dems benefited from and exploited and this idea that Labour Party was the loony left party they moved into a space occupied by formerly working class politics in a way uh, that meant that the far right were less able to operate there in the 1990s in the way they were in some East London neighbourhoods but it you know that was kind of one of the first models we've seen of that kind of ventriloquizing of of, of working class experience for no you know diff more reactionary purposes that's so interesting. but it's bang on because growing up that's what i used to, used to hear like an asian family got access to housing no one's really talking about it but that's what you would see that's what it would appear to people on on the ground in the early 90s when the far right used to come down and walk that march down brick lane they used to be kind of saying we will do stuff about it. they're willing to listen to you you could see how powerful it was. Brick Lane was still a predominantly Asian area, but they still felt emboldened to walk down there because people were listening. And it was a scary thing. It's a scary thing. Yeah. yeah, and so there's a kind of discourse, Roger Hewitt talks about that unfairness discourse that the mm. far right was able to take on a kind of more left-wing language in some ways, slightly identitarian, like we are your voice because you're not represented at the multicultural table. Um, yeah, use that as a platform. In Bermondsey, in some ways, that kind of what you're talking about, Tisa, about the kind of local pride, sometimes uh, served uh, to help keep the far right out. You know, the fascists were seen as not Bermondsey people, and that association with the far right was a was another cause of you know resentment. They didn't like being you know that was another source of the stigma, and so there were examples, for example, market traders kicking the fascists out of um, out of the blue market in Bermondsey. Even though there's some people that listen, effectively, what happened was there's a coalition of people that keep people up. So it was a coalition of uh, the local Bengali boys here and uh, white residents, black residents, of all because it, they weren't seen as our people. So it comes down to again this notion of who belongs, who's outside, who are outsiders, who are insiders. The so, multi-layered solidarity yeah, that, multi that, yeah, that do exist. That do exist, and you're trying to say well, who's an outsider. So it, it comes down to the area. Are you from, in, in the kind of vernacular, are you from my ends? Are you from my ends? Are you from my postcode? And who is an East Ender? How you talk, and it comes down to demonstrating your pedigree. So we talk about where you're from, 
um, wait, what school you went to, do I know your mum, things like that. What's interesting about that though is the way that some parts of the, some bits of the, like some factions of the far right are able to still manipulate that notion of belonging. And the Isla Sheppey, mm. for example, and that's one of the hot spots of where the UKIP went mm. um, in the noughties to the tens, um, the twenty tens. Nigel Farage, like those parts, and he was—he's not from there, but he was able to capture an an, an idea of that I'm listening to you. They're not listening. To, they're not listening to you. I'm listening to you even though he obviously isn't and it's just like riding up hate. But that that's a very, the reason why I give that as an example is it's a very localised, specific, particular part of, let's just let's say England for now, that is able to like do those things that you said, coalesce around place, coalesce around a location. But the far right was still, are still able to weave themselves into somewhere and create like increased um tensions that are racialized that are gendered and it's, i just find it interesting like when and how they're able to mm. to do that yeah i thought you talking to nigel farage it was a really interesting speech he gave um i think just maybe 2015 something like that where he spoke about catching a train into kent oh, through yeah, yeah. southeast london he, he names uh I can't remember exactly where he named it. it was maybe New Cross, Lewisham, Catford, something like that. Um, he named these kind of southeast London locations that he passed through heading to Kent where he lives and he spoke about it being a foreign country, you know, not hearing English spoken on the train. And he knows what he's doing, Ben, because you know what's, what's so interesting about that that you say in the articles, you talk about the children of the white residents of the of the council housing that have to go live in Kent they can't afford they can't afford obviously to live in um, London anymore and like that train journey it, like that goes through Kent you do get like those groups of people that's where they're living so he's able to capture so many things at once by locating yeah a, a notion of like a nativism language but location it, but it's, it's interesting how when people speak in those terms, right, the idea of like the imagined white community, mm. but that's not practical. It's not going to happen. But it's, it's something that that it's in the popular imagination. But the idea that you can be like this in the kind of transnational world where everyone's moving and we're so linked, not just culturally, politically, economically, we're so intertwined that it's impossible to to go back to that. So yeah. so this idea that they that they keep kind of promoting. If it, if it came down to it and saying, okay, deliver, it's not something you could do. So I was looking at this kind of this argument on a kind of um, a kind of national scale about the southern states in America succeeding again from the from the north. And they said it's not a possibility that like, you could talk about it all you want. But economically, the red states, which are tend to be southern, are poorer. So the idea is that would all the white people live in the poorer states? No, they wouldn't do that, would they? So it's not going to work. This on this idea, this this white ethno state, this white, a white britain it never has it never it, it, it never has it's been. never have been but it's it's and never it's not it's popular not even, it's, it's, it's not possible not practical. so it just comes back to the the state and the far right's ability to manipulate and erase history but i think it comes down to the idea of power like the historical memory of power that that was had and the longing for that power again and the fear that you're going to lose it all but did you ever have it the elites had it but you know yeah, so there's a sense of, of dispossession. I think is the kind of mm -hmm. is the key. So when Farage makes that speech, um, 
he's talking about yeah having had something that you no longer have so Paul Gilroy talks about that in terms of melancholia in terms of like a failed mourning for something that's that's been lost so this kind of sense of even what you though what you had was quite threadbare but you've been dispossessed of it this kind of perceived dispossession that drives a lot of that that kind of uh, discourse Ben, thank you so much for joining us for the housing <laughs> series. That was so good. I know it's very sort of introductory into the paper, but the paper will be in the episode notes. We are going to get your co-author on the show as well. Oh, we'll make it right. Don't worry. Thank you so much for coming on the housing series. It's really, really important to us to keep yeah talking about different ways of understanding how housing can be a multi-class issue that we find some solidarities on. We will see you again soon. Bye-bye. Bye. Thank you for listening to the housing series with Surviving Society. You can now continue the conversation on Twitter and Instagram. If you enjoyed the podcast, please support us via Patreon 